Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. I want to bring up a few, <clears throat> a few slogans under point six, the discipline of relationship. So uh, one of the wonderful things about this text is that it goes from the ridiculous to the sublime or the sublime to the ridiculous. In other words, this teaching that we spent so much time on yesterday about you know, who are we really? We're one another. You know, what are we really? We're connection, compassion, love. What is this world really? It's nothing but love. That's something that we are, that's a vision, you know, a feeling for life and a vision for life that we'll never exhaust and we'll never fully and completely embrace. But we'll go down the path toward that full embracing of that vision as far as we can in this lifetime, and we'll appreciate it more and more each year of our practice. And we're always working on that, always working on it. In the meantime, we're in this crazy mixed-up world with all these confusing and confused people, chief among them being oneself, our own confusion. And, our, and, and you know, we're, there's all kinds of problems and pitfalls. And so we can't cover all that up with this big vision. We can't ignore that and think that we can go around in the world, you know, with our stars in our eyes. Don't you know everything is love? What's wrong with you? You know, be nice. I'm, I love everybody. We can't do that. You know, that's not really practical. But based on that vision, we have to have ways of practicing with other people and avoiding all the ways that we have of making things worse between each other. So the sixth point is called the, the practice of relationship. So I'm going to share with you some of the slogans under this point <clears throat> to give you an idea of how interesting and practical this text is. So here's a slogan. Don't talk about faults. F-A-U-L-T-S. Don't talk about faults. If you were to practice this slogan as a literal rule never talk about anyone's faults ever this would do wonders for your human relationships <clears throat> imagine if you actually did this never talked about the faults of others maybe you could try it for like several days or a week just censor yourself whenever you are ready to talk about the faults of others, people you know, or even like people in the government or on television? What if you never talked about anyone's faults? You would discover, probably, with some shock, how much of what you say requires censorship in this way. Because most of what we say about other people is discussing their faults. So if you could actually refrain from this kind of speech entirely, this would make you an unusually likable person. <laughs> and others, without understanding why it was, would be drawn to you. Because it is so normal for people to speak disparagingly of others, even people they love. Right? Friends do it about mutual friends. And we all enjoy this sort of innocent gossip but also, I believe that underneath the surface of our enjoyment and the normalcy of all this, 
it makes us nervous. Because what are the other people saying about us when we're not around? You know? <laughs> even as we're talking about them, on some level, without maybe it's not even conscious, we have a dread of us being in that same position. And this dread makes us, again, quite unconsciously, wary of one another. And this wariness that between us is so normal that we don't even think of it as wariness. So somebody who never did this, who was consistently seeing other people in a positive light and only talking like that, who is really supportive and forgiving, this is a really unusual person. But, of course, the obvious problem is, what about when someone actually is at fault? Which happens a lot, you know. What would we do? Would we just opt out of discussions and stand there and not say anything when, you know, in the middle of such a discussion? What would we do? The fact is, when someone is acting badly, of course, people do act pretty badly, pretty obnoxiously, with corruption and so on, cruelty, or, or just maybe stupid, incompetent. However deserving of our critical speech a person may be, it doesn't help. It generally makes a bad situation worse. And this is the case whether you speak to the person directly or whether you snipe behind his or her back. And the person of course, eventually discovers this, and even if they don't discover it, they can sense it. If they walk into a room, you know, where they're being discussed, they know it immediately. The traditional wording of this slogan is very telling. I've made the translation, don't speak of others' faults, but the actual traditional uh, Indian slogan is, don't speak of injured limbs. Don't speak of injured limbs. And the idea is that everyone who acts or speaks destructively or foolishly or even incompetently is like a person with an injured limb. If you see someone with a deformed hip or with stumps for arms, the injury is very obvious. And just as we don't criticize somebody for having an injury like that, I mean, how absurd would that be, right? To be critical of somebody because they lost a leg? We would never think of doing that. Although we recognize it is an injury and it creates limitations in that person's life. In the same way, it doesn't make any sense at all to be critical of a person with an inner injury that is the ultimate cause of that person's bad conduct. In just the same way, we can recognize the injury as an injury and recognize the limitations that come from the injury and respect those limitations and treat the person accordingly. You can always count on the fact that people who behave badly have been injured. You can have some sympathy for them. And if you need to correct them, and sometimes we do, we need to do something, make an intervention because of their behavior. It's a whole different thing if you make that intervention with that kind of sympathy, understanding what's going on. People who are injured in that way, are they have the challenge of figuring out someday how to heal their wounds. And, and probably we cannot do that for them. But very likely you're speaking to them harshly or with disrespect, will not help them to heal those wounds. In fact, it'll do the opposite. Speaking to or about a wounded, nasty person with kindness and warmth, when that person, exactly because they're wounded and they've been so nasty all their lives, they've only gotten negative feedback from other people, which they deserve, perhaps. So when you speak to that person with warmth and kindness, sometimes it can be a transformational moment in that person's life. And there are many stories, I'm sure you know many of them yourself, people whose lives have been literally turned around 
by someone who just looked at them, saw them, and was kind anyway. So this is hard to do unless you really do see the injury in the first place. If you see only the fault and not the injury behind it, it's hard to do. So practicing don't talk about faults would involve noticing when you're doing this, when you're talking about faults, remembering the slogan, because you've practiced it over and over again, and it pops into your mind as soon as you find yourself, you can't help it anymore. You know, you practice the slogan enough, and the first time you open your mouth to, even however slightly, you know, you're talking disrespectfully about someone else, it pops into your mind. Don't speak about faults, and then you, and then you check yourself. There is an injury behind every fault, And you remember that, you soften the way you speak. And little by little, you find yourself speaking differently. To see the injury in the other person, you have, and and accept it as an injury with sympathy, you also have to do the same for your own injuries. We have all been injured. There's nobody here who has not been traumatized to whatever degree. If only when as a child you wanted your mother and she left and as far as you know was never coming back. Everybody's been injured. When you will see your own injury and accept it with some sympathy for yourself then you can see that in another person, too. Don't talk about faults. A a great challenge, no? And and this is, I mean, you know, think about it. So this is something you work on in everyday life. This is not necessarily a meditation practice. It's not a profound, like, spiritual insight. It's just a way that you talk to other people, how you talk and how you pay attention to how you talk. By the way... uh, the practice of sending and receiving that we were doing on the meditation cushion in you know, relatively thorough way, you can also practice that at any time. Like if you're in the middle of talking about the faults of others, right? And you catch yourself and you speak, speaking of the faults of others and you, and you stop yourself, at that moment you could practice sending and receiving. Breathing in the person's injur- injurious pain, Breathing out relief right in that moment for one breath. If you're in the middle of a tough situation with another person, you're in some kind of altercation with another person, in that moment you can practice sending and receiving, breathing in their pain, breathing out healing. And in that one breath, you can sometimes change the dynamic of a conversation in which you've both been entangled with one another and now you're both together putting up the volume in creating, you know, an injurious situation, you can actually turn the volume down by one moment of sending and receiving practice. Another slogan. This is a good one. Don't figure others out. Everybody always laughs when I tell them that slogan. Why do we laugh? Because we're so busy figuring each other out, you know, all the time. But let's be real here. Who could ever understand another human being? Who could ever understand another human being? All you have to do is sit on your own, med- on your own meditation cushion for a half an hour. And if you're paying attention, you will quickly see that you can't even figure yourself out. <laughs> you know? Because there's so much going on in your mind and in your heart. And all the stuff that's going on, you know, it contradicts each other a lot of times, you know. You're a really arrogant person, you know. Just you think you're the best person in the world. And you think you're the worst person in the world. You know what I mean? Like, we have that. Anything that we can say about ourselves, the opposite is probably also true. So you can't figure yourself out. It's just endless. So how in the world do you think you're going to be able to figure somebody else out? And yet, if you could get back all the hours that you've spent analyzing your friends and relatives and figuring out you know, who they are and why they are the way they are, you'd, you'd have like decades added to your life. 
But nobody can fathom another person, really and truly. Every person is an enigma, you know, a total mystery. I mean, I've been married to the same person for 38 years or something like that, 37 or 38 years. I can't figure her out, you know. I have no idea. I mean, certain things are maybe some pattern, but in the end, you know, I don't really know what's, what's happening. I'm surprised all the time. Who can fathom another person? Who, who knows what makes somebody tick? And if you, if, it, if you knew yesterday, who knows what it's going to be like today? <clears throat> well, I, I work with uh, people who... I, I work with people who work with people in conflict. And I've learned a lot about conflict. The title of one of my poetry books is Conflict, which is a book-length poem about human conflict. I've learned a lot about it from hanging around with these people. And one of the guys that I work with, who, who's very dear to me, his name is Jack Himmelstein. He he's, lives in New York. We, the, this uh, organization has branches in New York and California, and I work in both places. And one of his sayings about this, which is really brilliant, think about this. He says... We judge ourselves by our intentions. We judge others by the effects of their actions on us. Isn't that true? Like, yeah, I said that, but I didn't mean anything by it. You know what I mean? I know that I, my intentions were good. Yeah, maybe it hurt you, but uh, my intentions were perfectly good. But when you say that to me, I'm really pissed off at you because I, all I know is that you said that to me. I don't know what you're thinking, right? Isn't that true? So when you think about that, like almost all of our conflicts and hassles with people are based on a basic misunderstanding. They don't make sense, really. Even though, to us, they make perfect sense. The truth of the matter is that they're based on a really faulty uh, view of human relations. Because we view ourselves, we judge ourselves by our intentions, but other people by the effects of their actions on us. Which is why, maybe you've noticed, when you're in a conflict, have you ever noticed this? 100% of the time, you're on the right side. <laughs> you ever notice? It's not like, I'm really mad at you and you're right. No, no. I'm really mad at you and you're wrong and I'm right. Yeah. Because we assume that the intentions of others are based on what looks to us like their conduct. And we're usually wrong. So the slogan says, why don't you give up this upside-down, backwards strategy? Why don't you remember that whenever you find yourself thinking about someone else's motives, needs, or feelings, why don't you just practice this slogan, don't figure others out, and recognize that probably most of what you think is incorrect. And even if it were correct, it would be correct in just the wrong way. You're always going to be seeing things from your own point of view. You never, you can't be in somebody else's skin. So when you're in the middle of that kind of thinking, just catch yourself and remember that you don't know what someone else is thinking or feeling. You can't know. And since you're ignorant, why don't you assume that everybody is doing his or her best and that everybody is on the same human journey that you're on. I, w I think that's a pretty safe assumption. And since you don't really know, you might as well assume that. And what if you did? Would this revolutionize your human relationships? I mean, nothing makes us more miserable than being in a habitual conflict with another person. I mean, if you go to work every day and there's somebody at work who you just don't get along with and you're there they are every day at work, I mean, this kind of ruins your entire job, you know? If you're living with somebody or married to somebody that you're in a conflict with and that's all that you can ever see in that relationship, this is a pretty horrible situation. And to think that we've created those situations based on erroneous assumptions is kind of horrifying. Why would we want to do that? Maybe at this moment, the person that you're facing, who's that you're in conflict with, is having a hard time. Maybe she's or he's in some awful place in her journey, in his journey. 
But who knows how anybody's life is supposed to go. Maybe that's what they have to do now, is be in that tough spot. Why would you want to condemn them for it? Why don't you relate to them in a way that helps them through the darkness to the light? So we try our best to be supportive of our friends, which is a good thing. Sometimes our friends come to us and ask for our advice, and and we give it the best we can. But in the end, I'm really sure that the best thing that we could do for, for anyone is to let them alone, profoundly alone, in the recognition that they are so much more than we could ever understand. When I say leave them alone, I don't mean abandon them or stop loving them or stop supporting them. What I mean is recognize their full human dignity. Don't think that you've got the answer to their problems. Don't think that you've figured out why they're suffering. Fully respect the journey that they're on. Practicing don't figure others out is training our minds to recall, even in the middle of a controversy or conflict with someone else, that we never really know what's in someone else's heart and that whatever we imagine is probably incorrect. To be sure, of course, you could think of many human situations in which it's practical and important and necessary to try to imagine what someone else is feeling, thinking, or wanting. Yes, sometimes we have to do that. But even when it's clear that that's what we have to do for now, we do it in the light of this slogan, with a certain amount of humility, and with the understanding that at any point we may be mistaken. Okay, one more, and then I'll stop. Because these are so much fun, you know. So we have, uh, don't figure others out, and don't speak about faults. And now this one is, abandon hope. Abandon hope. What? What? Abandon hope? (laughs) How can you say that? Shocking, you know. Surely hope is a good thing, isn't it? Don't we want to have hope? I mean, in a way, isn't the whole point of this training hoping that maybe this will help, right? Don't we hope that? Yes, there is that. And certainly, if I had a choice between being hopeful or hopeless, I'll choose hopeful. Yeah. But what this slogan is telling us is that let's think further about hope. There's actually a downside to hope. And we, we touched on this before when we were talking earlier because this comes up. Just you know, These are not made-up things. These come out of our experience. What's the downside to hope? Suppose we hope that this practice is going to make us improve. So we're looking for improvement. We're measuring. How am I doing? Am I doing better? I'm not doing better, it seems. So my hope now becomes the engine for my discouragement. Right? Now I'm discouraged. I feel like giving up. Because I really hope it's going to help. I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, and it's not helping. Maybe a little bit, but not nearly as much as I had hoped it it would help. Hope becomes discouragement quite easily. And in this sense, hope is limited and unhelpful. So this slogan is very provocative. You know, abandon hope. So let let me say a little more about how hope for personal improvement in our lives actually works. So life is, I'm sure, you know, a very mysterious thing. I mean, this is what, to me, what mostly what I've learned on my meditation cushion is how little I know and how mysterious life is. You never know what's going to happen. And one is forever surprised. The closer we get to our own actual experience, 
the more intimate we get with our own mind and our own heart, the more mysterious it gets. We learn, especially on our meditation cushions, but throughout our lives, that life unfolds, unfolds in a profoundly immediate and continuous present. Somehow the moment of the immediate past gets swallowed up in time and completely disappears, and another moment comes. The past is constantly going and gone, and the new present is similar to but never exactly the same as the immediate past. And this goes on moment after moment. In other words, every moment something new is being born in you. In other words, we do change, don't we? We have been changing all along. We don't need to hope for change. Change is coming, always, no matter what. Right? Every minute, we're really a different person. On the one hand. On the other hand, well, does anything at all change? Most of us have an idea that we're the same person we were when we were five years old. It seems like nothing has changed, basically. You know, yeah, we got taller and gain weight and we wear different kind of clothes and all this, but basically we're the same person we were decades ago. The feeling of being oneself, the feeling of subjectivity, seems to be the same, despite all the surface changes that have gone on. And older people, we all think when we're older, like I basically feel the same as when I was 20, you know, I'm surprised that I'm older, like what happened? Really the same. So we have this paradox, right? On the one hand, we're changing every single minute we're a different person. On the other hand, nothing seems to change at all. So what change are we hoping for? Where does hope figure into this? So, of course, conventionally, yes, our character changes over time. Right? We are different in some ways. But are we getting better or worse? And how would we know? On what basis would we judge? If today, let's say, I'm a mixed-up, unhappy person and I want to improve, right? From the standpoint of my being a mixed-up, unhappy person right now, wanting to improve, I'm looking over there at the person that I would hope to be. And I'm looking for improvement toward being that person I would hope to be. From the standpoint of my confusion and my unhappiness, I'm imagining an improved me. But how could that vision of the improved me make any sense when it's the projection of a confused and unhappy person? Right? (coughs) So 100% of the time, when we're in a position where we want to be different and we're projecting a person that we want to be, that projection is always erroneous. And when we... When we measure ourselves against that projection, it's always going to come out wrong. The present moment, actual lived moment, is never anything like any moment that we could imagine. There's a a qualitative difference between my imagination of tomorrow and what actually happens. I mean, I imagined on uh, Friday that I would fly to Toronto and that I would somehow get to a place like this where I would do a weekend retreat on the, on the book and on these teachings. And all that happened, just as I imagined, but actually not at all as I imagined. The reality of sitting here was nothing like my imagination of it. Because reality is not like imagination. It's a different kind of thing, isn't it? Totally different. So think of how we become prisoners of our imaginary lives and therefore fail to live our actual lives because they don't fit our imagination. I mean, it's a a stupid idea, a simple-minded thing, but it's actually true. I've been doing the practice for a long time And people sometimes ask me, most people don't have the nerve to ask me, but sometimes people ask me, they say, well, has it done you any good, you know? (laughs) 
Have you changed? Because you've practiced Zen pretty much full-time for 45 years or whatever it's been? And I don't really know what to tell them, you know, honestly. Have I changed in 45 years? Yes. I'm a different person now than I was 40 years ago. But then again, anybody who lives 40 years more is going to be different 40 years later. Whether they practice Zen or not, they're going to be different 40 years later. And, you know, if I'm different in certain ways 40 years later, can I attribute those ways to Zen practice? Or can I just say, well, I live 40, whether I would have done the practice or not, it would have been the same thing. In other words, I I really don't know that. So that's one problem with assessing how well you're doing and hoping for certain changes. So in 40 years, have I improved? Well, maybe in some ways. I think I'm more stable in my mind, in my behavior. Now that I was 40 years ago, I'm more ethical, I think. I'm more empathetic. So maybe I've improved, but also I've definitely gotten worse. Forty years ago, I wasn't stiff whenever I got up from my meditation cushion. (laughs) Forty years ago, I had a lot more stamina and energy. I had a lot more buoyancy and and enthusiasm and, and, you know, hope for the future. So, in the last 40 years of all this expensive Zen training, as my dear friend Philip Whaley used to say, I wonder if all this expensive Zen training is doing any good or not. Well, I don't know, you know, honestly. I don't know. Abandon hope. Abandon hope. Don't look for improvements. And don't get too excited if you see improvement. This, this ha- so many people I have to say, oh, I was so excited, blah, 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 this happened. And then, I, and then I, the next, then it wasn't there anymore. And I was so disappointed. I had put so much into this practice and I was going, doing so well and now I'm worse than ever. Well, you got too excited. and that probably caused you to feel worse than ever since it's actually impossible to say for sure whether or not we've improved or how we've improved why would we want to frustrate ourselves with all these useless ideas that are only going to sabotage our practice the only way you can do this is if you have faith in the ongoing process. And this faith is not some kind of, you know, magical religious faith, some leap of faith in in the Buddha or in Buddhism. It comes from your own experience over time. Somehow or other, if you will continue the practice, you will just feel that this is the only thing to do. It just makes sense. Can you say you're a tremendous person, a wonderful person, much better than... Who who cares about that anymore? You don't even care anymore. You just know this is the thing to do. And you just keep doing it. And you're quite happy to continue. In other words, you're not looking... I'm doing this so that I can get to that. I'm doing this to do this. And that makes me really happy. And I know it's good for me in some way. And that becomes enough. You become dedicated to practicing. And you find your human dignity in that. You know, a lot of us you know, have trouble, I think, taking ourselves seriously. But if you commit yourself to a spiritual life and you practice that life every single day, maybe you miss a day, but you know you keep going with it, you are going to have, despite yourself, respect for yourself. Because only a person of integrity and discipline and basic goodness of heart does this practice and continues it. There's something inherently dignified 
and beautiful about a human being that does this useless practice without any hope, but just to do it because it's wonderful. Having said all that, I will also say that, uh, you know, I, I retired uh, many years ago from the Zen Center, and now I've been, uh, I'm a, retirement gen, gen, a retired gentleman, occasionally visiting friends in Toronto or someplace like that to share Dharma. And uh, in doing that over these last uh, 15 years or so, uh, I wondered, you know, well, let's see what happens. Uh, maybe you do have to live in a monastery for many years to get any good out of this practice. That's far as I knew that was the case. So let's see what happens if we practice with people who don't live in monasteries and have families and children and jobs and responsibility and financial things and so on and so on. Let's see what happens. And so I, I'm a bad example because I did spend 20-some years in the monastic life. So, you know, I don't count. But, but people that I practice with over the last 15 years who have not had that experience, if they give themselves to the practice, they tell me that their lives are so much more deeply felt than they were before. That they understand their lives completely differently from the way they did before. That their ability to interact with other people and have kindness in, in, their, in their relationships to not make things worse in their life, to have some happiness, increases by quite a lot. So, there are enormous improvements. And everybody here probably can also testify to this. Our lives do improve with the practice. But it's just better not to hope for that is all. The improvement in our lives comes exactly when we stop hoping for improvement, when we're content to say, you know what, this is actually my life today, and it's okay. So abandon hope is a wonderful slogan, and it's something to apply whenever you're getting frustrated with your practice. Whenever you're frustrated with your practice, and if you examine, you'll see it's the reason why is because you were hoping that it should be a certain way. And it's not that way. It's the way it actually is. So abandon hope. And that goes for our human relations. Abandon hope that your spouse is going to become a different person from the one they are. Abandon hope that the co-worker is going to change. And just be willing to relate to people as they are that's the place where you can do the most good and have the most happiness. Yeah, so let's stop there and whatever anybody has on their minds. Yeah, go ahead. Just a, <clears throat> a comment on a different perspective I was listening to. Um, a talk last night by, I believe his name is Joe Dispenza. Mm-hmm. Mayor, no. He's, um, he's a neurologist and he was talking about um, the manifestation of what you want mind over matter, so if you want, say, whatever it is, like, manifest it, imagine it, think it, and, and create it, and so my friend sent it to me in relation to, like, create the place that you want to find to move into, mm-hmm. and, and as I was listening to it, pardon me, I was thinking, you know, that's setting yourself up for, for hope, right, like, there has to be a balance Imagine the life you want. Create what you want to have manifested. Mm-hmm. So I was listening to him at the same time. Like, that just seems like this, uh-huh. this dream hope. Or when so many people around you say, don't worry, you're going to find that special person. Maybe. But maybe not. Yeah. And people always look at me because I always answer like that. Maybe, but maybe not. And <laughs> you know, I'm hoping that I uh-huh. Uh-huh. this grandiose love of my life, like it just, it is what it is. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and that's that. So, yeah, I just wanted to get your comment.
Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because this is a very important thing. So I'm not saying at all that that doesn't work or that's not a good idea. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've never myself you know, lived in that way. Although there is such a thing as visualization practice where you visualize something ahead and uh, that helps you to be calm as you're going in that direction. But this is something different. This is person is proposing that you can make something happen by projecting it with your mind, which is the opposite of what this slogan is saying, yeah. as you're pointing out. But here's the, here's the important point. It's not The point is not which of these, these two things will work better. That's not the point. The, the point is that this whole text, the whole the reason for it in the, and what it's geared toward is the development of love and compassion and the recognition of our human connection. That's what it's about. So all the slogans are really toward that end. That's the point of it. The point is not, do you get the place you want to live in, or do you find your life partner? Mm-hmm. The point is, do you increase your love and compassion for yourself and for others and your connection to other human beings? Mm-hmm. In the case of the, what you're talking about, I think the point is that you can get what you want by visualizing it, and pr- perhaps you can. Mm-hmm. But that's not the purpose of this text, Right? So there may be many better strategies than this text for getting what you want. There may be. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm re- really. But, but from the point of view of this text, getting what you want is not a big advantage. Because if you get the apartment that you want to move into, but you hate everybody, or everybody hates you, or you have no love in your life, or you're just, you know, like you're just alienated from all of humanity, I would rather have a worse apartment, you know, myself, <laughs> and feel differently about my life, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, I mean, here you talk about hope. Hope is getting a bit hard and feathered in this, whether hope is the problem or whether self-clinging is the problem. Yeah. Because I think about the meta prayer, uh-huh. and I feel like that is a kind of, Offering a wish or a hope that yeah, might yeah. be better for whomever. It's right. Not that I'm invested in that result. Right. But it's so, in the hope that it's so much centered around. Right. Yeah, that's right. And that's why in all, in all these slogans, you don't want to get hung up on the words and take the words too literally. The, the intention of the slogan really is, is it's, it's, it's directed at our. Way, the way that we have of undermining our own practice by getting ourselves disappointed by de- designing a life that we think we're supposed to be having or getting and then being disappointed in that. It's, it's, a, it's hope in that specific instance. But that's right. It's a good idea to generate a positive feeling for others, like in the metta prayer. So hope per se is not the enemy or the problem. It's a certain, certain view of hope or a certain kind of hope. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, like in our Dharma meetings, we always end every meeting <clears throat> with chanting for the people in our community who are sick or who have just died. And what is that chanting, if not the hope that somehow or other uh, the best for these people will come about? Either if they're ill, that they'll be healed. If they've died, that their spirit will be um, peaceful as they cross over. We're hoping, we're generating a kind of hope, right? So that's and that's good. But in doing that, we are not expecting. You know, if, if the person we're chanting for isn't cured, if they actually their illness becomes worse and they pass away from it, I don't think we're all going to get upset that we chanted. What? The chanting, it didn't do any good. We wasted our time. I don't think we feel that way. I think we feel that the very generation of this hope is itself worthwhile. And whatever happens to the person... We think it's worthwhile for our hearts and, and for them. And I know people, when we tell people we chant for them, they're happy that we're chanting for them. E- even if they know, I'm going to die from this, but I'm really glad to know you're chanting for me. So somehow there's a virtue in that kind of hope. But yes, you're right. What perverts the hope and why this slogan is created is because the hope has self-clinging in it, just like you say. And that's what makes it counterproductive. Mm-hmm. So, more things about this? Mm-hmm. I guess just to go back to what you said, Aaron's name, um, I think, and maybe when we were in the 
yeah. over our minds. Um, and I'm wondering about felt experience and visions that come up when we drop into our bodies and mm-hmm. things that feel so profoundly true in a deeper sense. Mm-hmm. Can you give me an example of what you mean? I think that uh, we appreciate and trust everything that comes into our mind and heart. There, there it is. It's there for a reason, right? So then, if our practice is clear and we know what we're trying to do, then we hold that with curiosity. So what is this about? What does this tell me? What, how should I practice with this? Sometimes we realize, well... The thing for me to do is just let that go. That, that doesn't make sense. And sometimes you say, no, I feel like I want to go there and, practice, and go in that direction. And that feels right, and you do that. So uh, I don't think we abandon anything until we test it out, until we try to understand um, where it's taking us. But our principles are clear, and our commitments are clear, and our practice is clear. We, we don't want to be self-centered, we want to be of use to other people, we want to be compassionate and kind. Does this bring us closer to that? Yeah, I mean, in my case, you know, I have received precepts, so I practice precepts, and uh, I know that things that come into my heart that are in accord with the precepts, I go there. Things that come into my heart that are not in accord with the precepts, usually I can see that they're self-centered and they're going to lead me to trouble, and there's nothing, they're not really something I need and want to do. So I let go of them. Yeah. But yes, as you as you point out, I mean, all kinds of phenomena come into our mind and heart in practice. All kinds of visions and and things, and and uh, they're all trustworthy, and none of them are trustworthy at the same time. And so we just decide based on what our lives are, what we want, to, what we want to do. You say that. Uh when people ask you if you have changed, you say you don't know. Maybe you haven't changed, but I think you have changed a lot of people. Is that more important? Well, but who knows? Hmm? Who knows if I've changed a lot of people? Oh, of course you have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't With know. <laughs> well, uh, who knows? Oh, you know. <laughs> well, well. Sometimes people say that, but you know, I don't know whether I believe them or not. <laughs> I know what I do know is that uh, I, I like to tell people that you know how how I became uh, abbot of Zen Center was, you know, this old joke about in the army. Uh, you ever see these kind of joke in old movie? Like all the soldiers are standing in a row. And, and the, 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 the uh, commanding officer says, okay, whoever wants to volunteer, take one step forward. And when he says that, everybody takes one step back, except for one idiot who doesn't know enough to take a step. And he's left forward, and he's the one who gets to volunteer to do the dangerous thing. Well, that's what happened to me. That, that's how I got to be abbot of Zen Center. I was too stupid to run away like everybody else did. And I was sort of stuck standing there, and there was nobody else that they could find. And then because of that, I, you know, I, then I was practicing with a lot of people. And then uh, when I retired as abbot, I said, okay, well, uh, I'll, I'll try to keep uh, teaching. And if I can support myself doing it, then I'll continue. If not, I'll have to f- figure something else out. Maybe I'll go work in a shoe store which is what I've always wanted to do. A shoe store? Shoe store. Selling shoes. Yeah. 
I, I haven't given up hope. <laughs> that maybe, because I, I, I think it's fun. I did it when I was a boy, and I, and I really enjoyed it. You know? So uh, I thought maybe I'd go work in a shoe store, but, but it turned out that I was able to continue practicing. People supported me to practice. And uh, so in other words, this is what I'm supposed to do. So I do it. And, uh, and I do my best that I can. I don't really know whether it helps anybody. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, but uh, who knows in the big picture of things? Uh, what I do know is that we're all doing this together, right? I'm not, the, is, am I the only one doing this? No, no, no. We're all doing this together, right? And we're all going in a good place together. And everybody has their little piece of it, right? You have your part, I have my part. We're all doing this. And it's, it's great. We're having a good time. And, uh, and life goes on, and uh, that's nice. I'm happy. But uh, I wouldn't claim that it's doing any good. I wouldn't make that claim. Who knows? But if you think so, I'm happy. I mean, I'm happy for you. It doesn't do me much good, but I'm happy for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Abandon hope. Abandon hope. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 